0: You're listening to the Families Under Pressure podcast series presented by the Life Course Centre. This is a special episode recorded as part of a panel discussion hosted by Life Course Centre research leaders. They discuss opportunities for major social reforms arising from the COVID 19 pandemic.
1: I'm Janine Baxter and I'm Director of the Life Course Centre. Let me start by acknowledging the traditional owners and their custodianship of the lands on which we meet. And we pay our respects to their ancestors and their descendants who continue cultural and spiritual connection to country. And we recognize the very valuable contributions that they've made to Australia and global society. The focus for today's webinar is an event that has had a huge impact on all of our lives and continues to do so, perhaps more so than any other event during our lifetime, and that is the impact of COVID-19. Most of the discussion about COVID has been negative, pointing out that it is without doubt one of the most catastrophic social, economic and political events that has ever occurred in our in our lifetimes and of course we're not through it yet, it's still unfolding and we're still going through it at the moment. But what we wanted to focus on today was some of the potential positive impacts of COVID. What are the silver linings that an event like this may offer for major social and economic reforms? And so to do this, last year, some of us in the Life Course Centre collaborated on a paper titled Never Let a Crisis Go to Waste. It was first developed as a report for the CEDA, the Committee for Economic Development in Australia. We then published a longer version on the Life Course Centre website and it has most recently appeared in the Australian Economic Review. And I want to acknowledge all of the many authors across the Life Course Centre and beyond who contributed to this paper. But what we've done for today is to invite three of the authors from across the nodes who will just run through with a couple of sections of the paper, some of the key points that we were raising about what are the possible positive outcomes? What can we learn from this pandemic? That may actually achieve some of the aims and ambitions that we've had to reduce social disadvantage. So our first speaker is Professor Stephen Zubrick. Steve is a former Life Course Centre Chief Investigator and he was our Deputy Director Research from 2014 to 2020. He's now Emeritus Professor at the University of Western Australia and at Telethon Kids Institute, and also emeritus with the Life Course Centre. But Steve is still very actively involved in the centre, which, and we're very grateful for that. Steve is an expert in child and adolescent health and development.
0: Hey, thank you, Janine, and and welcome, everybody. I'm speaking from Perth, um, where I'm on Wadjuk Noongar uh, country. And the, the scene is very much set here by Janine uh, in the reminder that uh, this uh, really started with a global health threat, a pandemic, and that's provoked a global and social uh, and economic shock. We stepped in to 2020 with significant threats and uncertainties and major questions, who would be affected, how badly, how long, and very fundamentally, what would control this. One of the four points I want to make right up front is that that people will remember in 2020, we were told it would be five years before we had an effective vaccine. And what in fact took place is that that happened within a year. And since then, we've seen several vaccines, effective vaccines emerge and be rolled out. This represents a high point in science, and I think we have to start there by affirming more than just a, a, a silver lining. A five-year hike to a vaccine would have been a long a long wait with a very different course of outcomes attendant on it. The second point that I wanna make, which is a much more practical one, is that the onset of the pandemic and the lockdowns that occurred around the country were accompanied by an extension of Medicare benefits for telehealth coverage. Now, this was entirely reactive. There was an enforced adoption of telehealth, I might say after years of arguing for better access, particularly from people living in rural and remote areas. Now, there have been ins- inconsistencies in coverage uh, and, and access, we'll acknowledge that up front, but one of the fundamental things that this has done has improved a level of equity in accessibility, certainly by, uh, you know, by distance, remoteness, and rural people have been able to step into that better provision, and by income and social class. It's not perfect, but it's certainly better. One of the things that's happened here is there's been a legitimization of telehealth. I was fascinated, for example, to note that in the month of June alone, there were 17 million. MBS consultations in 2021, 3.4 million, about 20% of those were via telehealth. All right. Uh, 93% of those were actually over the phone. I've always been wondering, what is telehealth? 7% of them were on the video. So there's a fine experiment and opportunity here to look at what the impact of this provision has been. And of course, a studied interest in its continuation as we move forward into these next stages of the pandemic, where it will continue to be remain vital to see what the, uh, the impact of its use is eventually. The third point that I want to make in terms of silver linings is that the pandemic has been a reminder of the value of public health systems and their role in disease control and prevention. We can't underestimate the importance of the visibility. As painful as the reality of the pandemic has been, this has really provided the public with an upfront experience of what public health does, what its importance is, the importance of maintaining it. One of the first and early signs of success actually in the response was the tanking of the seasonal flu uh, notifications. I hope this motivates a continued reinvestment in the value of public health and preparedness. It's hard to advocate for prevention because it's something that you don't see. And this has been an important example of that. Finally, quite critically, what we've all been experiencing in the pandemic is an evolving debate. Uh, It's been a highly public debate that's brought both the social and political lives of Australians into questions, deep questions about how we value lives that are embedded and dependent on an economic. Now, the shock we've experienced is a global health event and our national debate has been about what underpins our economy. Who do we protect? Who do we support? What are our collective resources and how are they going to be used? The health of citizens in Australia is in part the human capital that drives the economy. And what I've been impressed with is that the science of health has largely been listened to and it's had a leading voice in balancing health and economic decisions. We've got more ahead of us. In this regard, Australia has tolerated this debate quite well in my view than other countries and it's, and the citizens remain engaged in following health advice.
1: Our second speaker is Professor Deborah Cobb-Clark from the University of Sydney. Deb is our current Deputy Director of Research. She's been a Chief Investigator since the establishment of the centre back in 2014. Deb's based at the School of Economics at the University of Sydney, and her research focus includes the effects of economic and social policy on human development, mental health, intergenerational disadvantage, welfare, and education.
2: Welcome, everyone. I'm coming to you today from the lands of the Gadigal people, and I'm really happy to be here. I've been asked to sort of reflect on what opportunities the COVID pandemic is presenting with respect to our tax and transfer system. And I think before doing that, what I want to do is just reflect a little bit on the the context. The pandemic certainly has been a crisis. We titled the paper, Never Let a Crisis Go to Waste, very intentionally, because there are opportunities in the fact that we're sort of experiencing this call to arms, this we're all in this together, we have a pressing problem. One of the things that's resulted from that is that policy is being done much more quickly. Things that we thought were too hard or might take a long time to debate and get everyone on side are happening much faster. Steve mentioned the telehealth initiatives but there'd be others it's also the case that things are happening with perhaps not universal support that's probably way too strong but it does seem that it's possible to do things with less than the usual amount of political obstructionism and that gives you an opportunity to do things creatively that you might not have been able to do if you weren't experiencing a crisis I guess the other thing I would point to is that there's a much broader cross-section of Australians who've had real lived experience with the social safety net as a result of the crisis. On the 23rd of March 2020, 90,000 people found themselves suddenly applying for unemployment benefits, many of them for the first time in their lives. Many of them would have had no real expectation that this was something that was ever going to happen to them. The borders had closed merely days ago and all of us were quite shocked, I think, to see the real impact it was having on people's lives as these lines for Centrelink offices snaked around the block. That has potential again, for influencing the way that the discussion goes around the value of the social safety net. So Steve sort of mentioned the support for the public health system. Well, I think we've seen a similar sort of support, a, a real lesson in the importance of the social safety net. And some of the um, discord and the divisiveness in the debates, particularly in the US, I think can be directly linked to the fact that people were asked to do very difficult things, but there was no safety net to support them as they were doing that. The tax and transfer system has two components. It's about redistributing income, taxing certain people, and then redistributing it through transfers. Tax reform is notoriously difficult because it creates winners and losers. So tax reforms can be debated for generations. There's now an opportunity to go back and think about some of those ideas that we've had for making the tax system fair and equitable, more progressive, that we might actually be able to come to grips with at this particular moment, in part because we're going to need an awful lot of fiscal stimulus at some point to revive at least certain sectors of the economy, either particular industries or particular regions that are going to lag behind as we begin to open up. So the government will need to spend money. At the same time, the government's been spending a lot of money already. And so there will, at some point, need to be a discussion about how we balance the budget, how we pay the debt back. And that will inevitably involve a certain amount of additional taxation. So I think that as we think about the the sort of tax side of it, there's also an opportunity to take advantage of this new lived experience that the Australian population has with a safety net to ask a set of questions around, are we happy with the level of benefits? Are we happy with the support that a basic New START payment affords a family? Or could we be doing better? Is the safety net targeted well enough? There will certainly be individuals and regions that are left behind as we open up. And the question then becomes, should we be retargeting some elements of the safety net to attempt to bring those people along so that they're not left behind?
1: Our third speaker is Professor Guillaume Kalb from the University of Melbourne. Guillaume is in the Melbourne Institute of Applied Economic and Social Research, and she has research interests in applied microeconomics, labour supply, female labour force participation, and the impact of childcare and parental activities on child development and health.
3: But Before starting, I too would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and their custodianship of the lands on which we meet today and pay my respect to the elders past, present, and emerging. I will say a few words on labour market opportunities. The employment impacts have been enormous, and they were near instantaneous during the COVID crisis. But we did manage quite well, thanks to policies like JobKeeper and JobSeeker, the income support that was mentioned by Deborah. So many of us lost their jobs, at least temporarily, in each of the many lockdowns. And this was the case, especially for young people and for women. But there was good financial support for most, which really helped. And for those who could, the shift to working from home was very quick and successful. I must say, I was really amazed by how easy it turned out to be to go from one day to the next, from the office to working from home. And this was the case in many of the offices across Australia. It turned out that more occupations could be done from home than was perhaps anticipated. And productivity didn't seem to suffer much, if at all. And so these are learnings from the COVID crisis that can provide us with opportunities for the future. So perhaps maintaining some of this working from home could revitalize country times and regional areas that are outside the feasible daily commuting distance from high employment areas like the CBD of Sydney and Melbourne, but are within occasional community distance. And especially for example, families with children, this could be an attractive proposition. They might sort of appreciate the additional space in the home and around the home at an affordable price. The key, however, to making the most of this opportunity is finding the right balance between working from home and office time for both the employer and the employee. And this balance may differ by occupation or by industry. So you could imagine that employers would want to maintain some kind of team spirit, and benefit from the informal interactions that often lead to good ideas. So you would want to at least have some office time during your week to facilitate this. In addition, many of the employees actually enjoy the social aspects of work too. And they may be aware that going completely working from home would make the job a global one that could be done perhaps from anywhere in the world, which sort of brings its own risks. And so you really want to sort of think about, what's the right balance between spending time in the office and spending more time at home? Janine will further discuss some of the uh, important gendered impacts of working from home when she speaks in a few minutes. So when we think about working from home, it's perhaps more about the quality of employment. But for many people, the issues have been around the availability of work, which is more the quantity of employment. And this is perhaps especially true in regional areas. Although much of the employment will bounce back, as we have seen after each of the lockdowns that we've had in Australia, for some of the jobs, this may take longer. And thinking of people who may be likely to travel less over the next few years and perhaps less far away, tourism is one of the industries that may be likely to suffer longer term. And so therefore, domestic tourism is perhaps all the more important in providing opportunities. And it actually made up a substantial 75% of tourism in OECD countries. And this was before the COVID crisis hit. So it is a substantial proportion of the industry. And this could potentially provide employment opportunities in the regions. A higher focus on domestic tourism would also allow a move to a greener, more sustainable future with fewer air miles, which is important in light of the current climate change crisis. However, if we want this to be successful, so for domestic and interstate tourism to really take off, again, consumers need to be confident that the borders are going to stay open and that uh, lockdowns are going to be an exception going forward. So how we manage the borders over the next few months as Australia opens up again, is really crucial for starting up the industry again and providing the industry of tourism with a viable chance. Another opportunity for regional areas may be in the local manufacturing of some essential goods. So as we saw at the start of it, there were some products that started to become manufactured in Australia itself. And so that is a good idea, but you have to be cautious and selective because there are clear benefits of specialising in producing particular goods and services. So you don't want to sort of, as a country, produce everything in your own country we want to remain cost-efficient to protect Australian living standards. I want to finish off with one positive side effect of COVID-19, which has been to highlight the importance of some relatively low-paid work and also of unpaid work, but this will be discussed by Janine. So examples of these types of relatively low-paid jobs are nursing, child and aged care, and primary school teaching, which have low pay relative to the required qualifications. And so we could use this revaluing of this type of job as an opportunity to advocate for improved paying conditions in these occupations, really reflecting the qualification levels that are required for these jobs, but also the importance that these jobs have for society at large. Or at the very least, if we cannot manage that, we can show an increased awareness and appreciation for the valuable contributions that these workers are making.
1: Thanks very much, Dion, Steve, and Deb. I'll just make a few remarks about the impact of COVID on gender and on women. Of course, there's been a lot of discussion about this, and to be honest, it's been mostly negative. So most commentators and most research that I've seen is suggesting that the impact will be negative for women, that women have been more seriously affected by COVID in a number of ways than men, and that this will lead to widening gender inequality, widening gender gaps. And, you know, there hasn't been a lot of detailed research on this as yet, and I think there's a lot more that we need to do. But certainly the early indications, the evidence that I've seen, suggests that that is in fact the case, that by and large the outcomes for women will be negative. One example of that evidence comes from the Workplace Gender Equality Agency who've reported that the gender pay gap has widened. And of course, at the Women's Safety Summit held at Parliament House a few weeks ago that we were involved in, we heard a lot of reports and we've heard them from elsewhere of increased violence against women, increased domestic violence, and increased severity of domestic violence. So the early indicators are that the the pandemic will have a, a very negative impact on women. And if you think about the sectors of the labour market that women are concentrated in, hospitality, tourism, the service sectors, these are some of the, the areas that have been hardest hit by the lockdowns and the industry closures. So it's quite likely, and we've seen evidence of this in the ABS, that women's levels of unemployment will be worse than is the case for men. And of course, the flow on effect from that is not only lost wages, but further on in the life course, reduce superannuation. The effects are likely to play out, not just over the next few months, but potentially over a lifetime for some women. I think the other point to note is that women make up a lot of the frontline workers in healthcare, as Guillaume mentioned, in childcare, aged care sector. These are the groups that have perhaps experienced some of the most pressures to work very long hours. And they've often been working in quite dangerous conditions where they're exposed to the virus in a way that people in other professions or other industries are not. So not only have they been working long hours and under a lot of pressure with a lot of very ill people and vulnerable people that they're supporting, but they've also potentially exposed their families to the virus as well. I think in terms of gender inequality, there's a lot of evidence that the effects might be quite negative. But I want to turn to thinking about what might be some positives, and I'll just pick up on the point that Guion mentioned about working from home. And I guess I've got maybe three or four points I wanna make that might be potential silver linings for women and gender inequality. So yes, working from home, instantaneous, as Guion mentioned, at least for some occupations. And this has the potential to ease some of the the work family stresses that women face. We know from other data that women report some of the highest levels of work family pressure, and it may be that working from home, not having to commute, being able to combine that paid and unpaid work that women are responsible for in a more flexible way gives women a degree of relief from some of that pressure. So that's one possible benefit. A second benefit may be it's not just women, of course, who are working from home, but also men increasingly working from home in some professions. It may be that men who are working from home, given the opportunity to become more aware of all of the activities that go on around homes and families, around childcare and domestic work, and even to get engaged and involved in some of that work in a way that they may not have prior to the pandemic. And there has been some research that I'm aware of from the Australian Institute of Family Studies last year in their survey of men working from home. I think 61% of the men who are working from home said they were doing more to assist with homeschooling and learning activities for their children. And 16% of these men said that they were more involved in the day-to-day care of children. So you know that's a positive sign that men, because they're working from home, have more opportunity and more engagement with some of the work around childcare and domestic work. And then a third point that I'd make that maybe be a, a silver lining from the pandemic, is what we saw happen in Australia last year around childcare. Between April and June 2020, the government made childcare free for all essential workers. Now that was a huge change, it happened pretty much overnight and I think it was a really wonderful boost for those families to be able to know that they didn't have to worry not just about not being able to pay for childcare but that it was available and it really raised I think the importance of childcare as an essential service not just for families with children but for the whole running of the economy. So these essential workers needed childcare to be available and to be free in order to be able to provide all of the other services they are involved in. So that was a wonderful change. Unfortunately, it's no longer the case that childcare is free, that bonus has been taken away. But I think for a moment there, we saw what could be achieved with that kind of a policy change. And then the fourth point that I would simply make, and I think Guillaume's alluded to this already, is, is just that I think the pandemic has raised the awareness about the importance of care work more generally, and raised awareness of the importance of families, personal relationships, strong communities, and the whole social reproduction of labor that goes on, often behind the scenes and in an invisible way. And I think that perhaps the pandemic has made us and the government more aware of just the importance of that often invisible work. So perhaps that will lead to some further changes down the track.
0: Thank you for listening to this special episode of the Life Course Centre's Families Under Pressure podcast. More episodes will be coming soon. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.